Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello and welcome to Coaching Inside the Box, episode number 49, the one before the big enchilada, episode 50. And today we have a fantastic show in store for you. There are so many things that we could discuss today. So many, so many big topics. We could t- talk about player safety and how hot it is in Kansas City as kids try to traverse playing soccer uh, in, in uh, 115, 120 degree feels like temperature. We could discuss kicking off a new season and what a new season looks like from a positional play versus relation, relationism perspective. We could dig deep on the Women's World Cup failure um, and what maybe uh, use that as a launching pad to talk about and dissect what maybe is wrong with U.S. soccer from a business model versus development model. So many fun topics to discuss um, and we're going to get into all of them, just not all of them today. Only one today. Andy, you're with us today. You're excited. Philippe, you're with us today. You're excited. What's going on? Well, when you mention all these topics, I think Andy is going to try to get all of them in today. No, no, no. He has, he's disciplined. He has spent time preparing. He knows exactly what he wants to cover today. He's focused. He's focused. And so he's playing on stand topic today, I think. Uh, what did you just say? Yeah, I was wondering <laughs> if you were even listening. <laughs> I just woke up. <laughs> oh, what a, what a gorgeous day in Kansas City. Not really. I think the feels like temperature will be like 122 at some point today, but... We're here bright and early in the morning. Not just the players need to train early. We need to record early, too, um, just to make sure Andy doesn't overheat. My, my wife wanted a landscaping job done, and so, you know, <laughs> I've, been, I've been hunting building sites for rocks. And the other day, I was in a 111-degree heat index, moving tons, literally tons of rocks around, you know, lifting them, etc. You know, and I'm no spring chicken anymore. You know, it, it took a little while to re- recover from that. I'm actually curious if this actually happened or Andy just envisioned it happening. I can show you the video. <laughs> <laughs> what did you record yourself doing in case you died? There was no, evidence. I, I recorded the rocks in their, in their resting position. Oh, okay. In their, in their final resting position. Because <laughs> I'm not moving those bloody things ever again. <laughs> well, he- hello and welcome back, guys. It's been a few weeks since we've recorded. Um, Felipe. Andy, any any big news, uh, any fun things that you'd like to share with our uh, um, enthusiastic listeners before we dig into our topic du jour for today? Well, I have a joke. I haven't, uh, I haven't surprise, had this. Surprise, surprise. No, for a few sessions, I've actually you know stayed away from the jokes. I know, and I think I think our listenership has, has increased. It's grown. <laughs> Well, let's let's get it down to regional levels again. <laughs> that was actually a good one. We <laughs> should start there. Yeah, we we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, so let's let's try and reduce that listenership down a little bit. So Einstein dies and goes to heaven at the pearly gates. And by the way, this is related to the topic that we're going to be di- discussing. Yeah, today, okay, okay. You know? so, we'll see. We haven't told people explicitly what it is, so we'll see if they can deduce it from your joke. Well, it's relationism. So, the, you know, this is... Okay, okay. This is, we're gonna, <laughs> Thank we're gonna, you for the spoiler. <laughs> he reminds me of my grandpa more and more every day. I, 
Is he a really young looking guy? No, he's very dead at this point. So is the fact that he's dead the the reminder? No, know, no, no, just like it's, it's his way or the highway. We're we're either on board or we're not. There's no in between. That he's still more good looking than Andy right now. <laughs> I thought you were talking about how slow moving I am. Oh, Grandpa Clifton, born 1916. <laughs> he was born during World War One. Correct. Mm. Well, it's better than being born 19 years before World War I and having to serve, right? That's fair, yeah. yeah. Um, relationism is the topic. And so, you know, we're going to look at, you know, the three characters in this joke, right? So the relationism and the type of characters we're looking at. So that's the, you know, that's the connection. Thanks, Eddie. Yeah. You know, just so as, you know, you can understand. Um, Einstein dies and goes to heaven. At the pearly gate, St. Peter tells him, you look like Einstein, but you have no idea the lengths that some people will go to to sneak into heaven. Can you prove who you really are? Einstein ponders for a few seconds and asks, could I have a blackboard and some chalk? St. Peter snaps his fingers and a blackboard and chalk instantly appear. Einstein proceeds to describe with arcane mathematics and symbols his theory of relativity. St. Peter is suitably impressed. You really are Einstein, he says. Welcome to heaven. The next to arrive is Picasso. Once again, St. Peter asks for credentials. Picasso asks, mind if I use that blackboard and chalk? St. Peter says, go ahead. Picasso erases Einstein's equations and sketches a truly stunning mural with just a few strokes of chalk. St. Peter claps. Surely you are the great artist you claim to be, he says. Come on in. Then St. Peter looks up and sees Donald Trump. St. Peter scratches his head and says, Einstein and Picasso both managed to prove their identity. How can you prove yours? Trump looks bewildered and says, who are Einstein and Picasso? <laughs> St. Peter says, come on in, Donald. <laughs> what does that have to do with relation? I don't know, but that was pretty funny. It was, that funny. was pretty funny. That was the first joke I quite liked. Yeah. I've told hundreds. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, before we dig in, Philippe, Summer, your parents have been in town visiting from Brazil. This has been going on for a few weeks. Has it been a good, uh, a good um, a future homecoming of sorts? As you tell us that they might might be moving to the U.S. Yeah, I mean, they're they're loving it. They're getting to know the town a little more, different areas. You know, kind of experience seeing. You know, just staying here, staying at home, going doing normal stuff that people do here. You know. Uh, since it's a longer time and it's been fun uh, coaching is a little reduced on the weekends for me uh, this fall since my teams are mostly in high school uh, and then less coaching more time on the weekends with them so been doing a lot of stuff with them over the weekends and it's been fun my dad got to see see me play one time uh, got to see me coach uh, a couple times too and you know stuff that you know playing wise very he saw me play over the last 10 years one time in person when he came here <coughs> when i was in college and that was like seven years ago so we had a, a good game with with some friends a group of friends uh at hivy arena you know brought a lot of the legends kids to come watch and 
Um, it was a fun event, and, you know, he came and watched, so that was fun. And, and yeah, the coaching that he had never seen me coach, so he was he Got was kind of... out of that. He, wa- he was actually kind of surprised. He was like, I couldn't imagine the kids were, were that, that good, you know, and, and especially here in the, you know, obviously he knows a ton about Still legends. Brazilian about, bias. Yeah, 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 you know, but he knows a- about the legends and about the philosophy and about, you know, everything that we do and how we're different. But he got to see more in action, you know, with my team and you know he loved it yeah so. yeah yeah well cool can i just say how much i'm against this you know the, the you know the foreigners coming into the you know, america yeah, yeah. I, you, we need to keep america english yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's done it has done great things for soccer here i'll tell you that <laughs> Oh, um, well, uh, guys, today, uh, um, if, if, if for the listeners, if Andy didn't spoil it and you're still wondering what we're going to talk about, we're really going to talk about from a tactical perspective, um, you know, one, one element that we're going to peel back is positional play versus relationism, right? Um, and this is, this topic is, is Philippe's idea. And I think it's a fantastic idea for us to talk about. Um, and really from a legends perspective, those listening have, have started to pick up, like we have a very specific way in which we teach the game and the way in which we train our players. Um, and I have a story to kind of kick us off, um, to put this a little bit into context as, as we, as we get going. So I coach a 2013 boys team. That's quite good. Uh, best team I've ever coached, um, uh, uh, punch well above their weight. Um, and, and, and statistically do quite well playing games. Um, and they are a very typical legends team from a perspective of they are very creative on the ball, very skillful, um, speed of play, uh, is, is, is a little bit slower than maybe other teams that we play against because the kids are encouraged to, to dribble so much, but their speed of play is still quite good. Their understanding of, of, of just the flow of play and space and working together as a group is better than most groups that I've coached. And I had a coach in the club come up to me the other day. And he said, hey, Andrew, but me to ask you, I've watched your 2013 team play a few times. And how often do you train outside? And I said, never. And he goes, never? And I was like, no, no, no. I literally, I, I'm as legends as you get. Like, we only train inside um, in the indoor facility using the box soccer courts in our small fields. And he goes, man, how do you teach the kids to, to move the ball so well? And I was like, well, we just train in here and we just play a ton of soccer, right? In 1v1s, 2v2s, and 4v4s. And I explained to him, I was like, it's a little bit different with this group. And it's they're, they're further ahead than any group I've had previous. Um, and, 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 and I said, specifically, there's two reasons for that from my vantage point. Reason one is they started really, really young. And so I started working with this group because I have a son in the age group at age like three. And by age five, five and a half, six, when other kids start really kind of, you know, waking up to playing, playing soccer at a, um, on a, on a weekly basis or by seven or eight, when the competitive soccer starts to kind of start in the Kansas city area, my kids, generally speaking, were so far ahead with the ball at their feet that when they started competing against peers from other teams or other clubs, they had the ball all the time, right? And so it kind of fed this thing. And so because they started sooner and developed more skill, they were able to get their head up more and see the field more just because they had the ball more than everybody else, right? Um, um, and so that that's part of it. And then secondarily, I've got a, in this group, there's some kids that just love soccer like you've never seen before, right? And Philippe, you train some of these kids on the side. Like, they know the game they watch the game on tv and so it's not a trained 
a trained element of teaching them, okay, this is how we move around the field. This is how tactics work. It's none of that. We just play, and the play has become the best teacher. Um, uh, the environment has become the best teacher from that perspective. And the coach is like, huh, I was thinking about taking my team outside a little bit more and start working on uh, some bigger concepts with bigger space to get my kids to move the ball around more. And I said, you shouldn't. Like, you, you'll gain nothing and you'll lose a lot by doing that. If you just stick with this, in my experience, in the last 17 years coaching legends um, uh, teams, if you just stick with this, the kids will all end up being 16, 17-year-olds that really understand the game and understand multiple positions and roles within the field, um, but they won't have given up that that technical development and that touch on the ball. And so I, I wanted to share that a little bit because I, I think listeners sometimes wonder like how zero sum are we in terms of a philosophical perspective? And I would argue that Andy Philippe and I, and a few, I mean, you know, several other coaches within the club are pretty zero sum in terms of legends. Like there's legends and then there's, various not as good forms of legends if that makes sense but even within our club a big size club like there's discussions within coaches in terms of how to encourage our players and and, and get the most out of them to be the most brave creative leaders as possible and i think you mentioned one thing that really get takes people take for granted you mentioned that your kids love soccer and they're fanatic about soccer so they watch a lot of soccer they study the game that also makes a difference. The way we train, the way everything is done is fun. The kids love it. Once the kid falls in love in the game with the game, they're hooked. It's like it's like a drug addict with a drug. Drug might be a bad example, but you know. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. Well, how it's, would you know that? <laughs> <laughs> but 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 when the kid when the when the kid has that much fun in practice and he, they enjoy the game so much, they get hooked to the game. So they want to watch more soccer. They want to get more soccer jerseys. They want to talk soccer all the time. They want to learn more about soccer. You know, nowadays I see kids on their iPads watching other people play video games well these kids now when they're on youtube because again we talked about is one of the biggest distractions is the technology but what so we're not going to be able to take that 100 percent away from them but if on that 20 30 percent they're doing they're doing something related to soccer that they're learning it, it already makes a difference and that can speed up some of the maybe decision making process and you know tactical understanding when they're older but again especially at you guys' age and you know younger than that there's no need for that they need to be really good on the ball really creative and understand the basics of the of soccer like when we talk about 2v2 pressure cover you know overlaps and stuff like that to to make the game you know easier and to give them ideas but they're going to play all the time we give them those coaching points and they're going to do it so much that it's going to come natural to them yeah so I've got something here that, that I think is, uh, is, is fairly closely related to what we're talking about right now. And, and uh, I'm going to you know, ask a rhetorical question. You don't want me to answer? No. Um, do I ever want you to answer? <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the rhetorical question. What is it that defines genius? When Albert Einstein met Charlie Chaplin in 1931, Einstein said, what I admire most about your art is its universality. You do not say a word and yet the world understands you. It's true, replied Chaplin, but your fame is even greater. 
the world admires you, but no one understands you. <laughs> so, so I think you took a long time to understand. <laughs> <laughs> I got Fuck it up, right away. <laughs> I thought that one was pretty clever, actually. But so, so um, you know, I I relate that. I'm going to give you you know some definitions of relationism in in a minute. But I relate that that little story to the complications of the game. You know, your your little story about your kids, you know, nobody really understands how skillful they are. You know, nobody understands the language that, that they speak, except perhaps working class Brazilians that play in the favelas, because they do this stuff all the time naturally. You know, the only difference being that we've done it as part of a taught curriculum you know because we believe in this so we think we do a better job than occurs in the favelas because you know you know taking Neymar as an example he's too creative he's got this massive repertoire of tricks and a lot of the tricks are not that effective they're pretty and if they do work it's really entertaining but a lot of times they don't work because he's just doing them for the entertainment value which is value in itself You know, but we like to be effective as well as entertaining, right? You know, so, you know, for me, Ronaldinho was incredible. He was entertaining and he was incredibly effective with his skills in a way that Neymar hasn't been able to replicate. Have you read the, sca the stats? Do you know that Neymar has over double the stats of Ronaldinho in goals and assists and trophies? Well, Ronaldinho so just did it at the right time then, didn't he? Ex no, he just did it for three, four years and then he was done. <laughs> Yeah, Neymar's stuck around for a while now, hasn't he? Yeah. You know, so, but so Neymar never played it in a league. I know this isn't the topic, but in a league that has the same level of... of, of it never as high as a league as Ronaldo for as long as Ronaldo has played did, in that league. Did you, did you know that when he won the Champions League with Barcelona, he scored in both quarterfinals, both semifinals, and in the final, and Messi only scored in the group stage. Whatever. And whatever. he, yeah, but, and who, he who, had who, more goals and assists than Messi on that Champions League. How good How good a Barcelona? How good a Spain? I mean, well, where you know, did Ronaldinho play? Let's <laughs> Barcelona. Talk, let's talk about some English teams who are really good. We're going to get to Spain in a minute. We're going to get to Spain in a minute. But, you know, so definition of relationism. What is relationism in philosophy? It is both a doctrine maintaining the existence of relations between things and a theory which proposes that knowledge is conditioned by its socio-cultural context. It's way too deep for me, so I hope the, the viewers are more intelligent than I am. Or in other words, it's immediate environmental and situational relativism so you know it's the environment and the situation and how those two relative aspects interact with each other what is relationism in football in soccer relationism also known as elite functional play is an emerging football philosophy that focuses on individual relationships between players rather than a strict team structure You know, and I wanted to make that clear because what you described with your boys might have been over the heads of some of our listeners because they're not understanding that we're focusing on individual relationships between players. 
you know, in, in small-sided games, in one-on-ones, two-on-twos, you know, one-on-ones, it's attacker versus defender. That's a relationship between players. Two-on-twos, obviously, teammates. Now, the, you know, the, the teammate factor comes in there against two defenders, you know, and so on and so forth. Three-on-three, etc. small-sided games, you know, and, you know, with our leagues in these indoor facilities, the maximum number we go up to is four versus four. You know, so it's all small-sided games, and you know this this relationship becomes organic, you know, and it becomes automatic. It becomes rocket fast, you know, very creative, very skillful, you know, with shaped finishes, bending balls, clever finishes, first-time finishes because of all the box soccer we play, as well as unbelievable skill on the ball. You know, Ronaldinho moves, you know, the, you know, the scissors, Cruyff turns, Maradona turns, you know, all of these moves that were performed by the greatest players in world history become de rigueur. You know, this is just the way it is in our facility. You know, they become natural to these kids because they grow up playing the game. And that's the difference that people don't understand. And it's very similar from everything you've told me. And I'd love to visit to, you know, to what you experienced growing up where you grew up, yeah. you know in the favelas of, of Brazil. So yeah. ju just to get a background in how we came across the topic, so uh, just I start watching more soccer as I'm having more free time with coaching and I start following the Brazilian league even more. Um, and then I came across, you know, some videos on YouTube about that. Was already looking for, you know, the teams in Brazil. And Fluminense had, was a club that I played for growing up. Uh, not growing up. I got there when I was 18. But anyways. Um, and the coach of Fluminense has been coaching in Brazil for the last seven, six, seven years. All started with a smaller club. Did really well. And then started moving to big clubs. And everybody kind of made fun of him. Because he played pretty soccer. But he wasn't effective. So he was, you know, he would pull the, his number 10 on a goal kick to start a goal kick. And he would play the ball to somebody and make a run. And everybody would just rotate and quick passing, skill dribbling, and just completely different than everybody else was doing. And everybody thought it was pretty cool. He was the first guy in Brazil that made the keepers start playing. And even, like, doing fakes to go to other sides and stuff like that. So... I started kind of listening. I wasn't really following. And then I started watching, like, his games. And, you know, now that I'm a coach, really evaluating. And I'm like, this is so fantastic. So you, when you watch the team play, basically, instead of spreading out, they compact the field in small 6v6, 7v7 fields, sometimes even smaller. Everybody crowded. Instead of opening up and moving away from pressure, they move back to pressure a lot of times, and do dummies, overlaps, you know, fake that they're going to run one way, run the other way, quick given goals, dribbling skills, I mean, and a lot, like Andy said, first time passing, first time finishes, everything, just so different and so entertaining, and when they lose the ball, they're all right there, yeah. so they press and they try to win it all the time, so I started doing some research, and what happened? He didn't have a lot of quality players trying to put, you know, create something with not the best, you know, um, tools, right? Uh, and then started going to the best, better teams, and things started to flourish way more, way more. Um, what happened? Just got hired to be the Brazilian national team coach. So that's why Philippe's so excited. Yeah, and I think it's the step in the right direction that to Brazil see. has 
needs to take because Brazil, since we lost the World Cup in 2006 with all those creative players, which we lost to France 1-0, game that could have gone either way. Desidane had one of the best performances of his life in 2006. And, you know, Brazil could have won the World Cup. Yeah. It wasn't like everything was wrong with Brazilian soccer. And then Bradunga, and then let's become European. The Europeans are way far ahead of us. And that's not true. If you look, if you look at the teams that win in the World Cups, mostly you get Germany, Bayern. You get uh, uh, Spain, Real Madrid and Barcelona. All those players play together. That's relationism. Even they, they all know each other. They train together or half of them train together two halves and they combine it's way different than brazilian players all spread out and all like that it, it, it's tougher in so our in our situation but having all the players when they're together you know let's go for the creativity we have the creative players we don't need to try to reinvent the wheel and try to become europeans we need to you know use what we have best what does brazilian players have best skill and dribble and creative why are we going to go away from that it's, it's stupid. Why are you going to focus on your weaknesses instead of keep focusing on your strengths? Yeah. What makes you different and special? What won you five World Cups? So Yeah. The, and to, to paint a picture for the audience that, that hasn't come and visited us in Kansas City, which you're all welcome to do, uh, a, a good friend of the pod um, and longtime listener just came and visited a couple weeks ago. He flew down on a free weekend from Canada, or two weeks ago, I think, and uh, had, you know, saw teams train uh, on Thursday night, spent, you know, <laughs> a full evening here at the indoor facility, just kind of popping in and watching sessions. And then over the weekend came and watched several of our teams played. So if you're listening, you're welcome to do that. Reach out to us. We'd love to have you come visit. But for those of you that haven't yet done that, um, you know, our training sessions are largely 1v1 and 2v2 based, right? Like we, we do, I, at the beginning, we do a ton of skill work, right? But once the kids start to build a skill, most of our sessions are largely 1v1 and 2v2 based with a capstone of some 4v4 at the end of sessions or the odd um, session um, as, a, as a primary focus. And in those, I mean, we don't tell the kids, hey, you're going to be forward, you're going to be midfielder, you're going to be back. Like the kids just play and then they <coughs> relate to each other and fill space and cover space. And that's the, those are the coaching points we make. So tell another story. So we, uh, this 2013 group that I've got, there's two teams together and we've got a new um, player that um, uh, has... Um, uh, just joined our group in May, right before tryouts. He came to some sessions, um, expressed interest. We added him at tryouts. Of course, he's trained with us all summer, and he hasn't yet make it to a game because that team that he plays for has had one game or one game yet, and he was out at the lake or something that weekend on a vacation. So he hasn't played. And I was ch chatting to his mom last night, and I really dig this kid. Like He's just like nose down, hardworking, smiley kid, but not like a super – enthusiastic kid just like very serious at practice happy working hard we've been teaching skill he's been trying the skill in practice in our 1v1s and our 2v2s um, and I was chatting to the mom I was like is Chase excited because this weekend is a tournament and so it's his first games with the group and she was like yeah he's he's excited he's really excited but he's he's kind of nervous and I go what do you mean he's kind of nervous she goes well he's still wondering how this all comes together and I go <laughs> what do you mean she goes well I mean like he loves the sessions but he told me the other day, he was like, I don't know like how we all play game together because we've done no attack versus defense or, okay, here's our, our formation. We don't, we don't do that ever in, in training sessions. And she goes, uh, she's, he's really excited to, to see it come together. And so I was trying to explain to her in not too many words on the side of the practice field, like it's just relationism. Like you'll watch it this weekend and you go, oh, 
the kids just kind of get where to cover space and how to work together and how to combine together in you know in uh, you know using a two v two in like a wall pass or overlap type of scenario. I said it'll just kind of come together, but like I didn't know how to say it other than oh, just watch if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't realize how much our approach is games based. You know, you know this. This is why it's so enjoyable for the kids. Is is the you know one on one is a game. You know, it's like playing chess. You know, but it's physically a lot more demanding, obviously. But it's a game. You know, you keep score. It's a game. You know, and you know you do all the fun things as well. You're dribbling. You're shooting. The things that kids really love to do are part of the game. They're the integral part of the game. So you know, um, you know we have you know. Specific rules within these games, though, which are designed to optimize creative, you know, relativism. You know, so it's not just a game. It's, it's a game with specific ways in which we're expecting the kids to play. One touch, two touch, fake a move within two. You know, you've got to do a move within two touches. You know, whatever the, you know, the imposed conditions of the games are the kids now have to adapt to those imposed conditions you know and we cover all of the imposed conditions the kids are going to encounter offensively in the outdoor penalty area within 12 18 yards from goal you know so they're always under pressure in this most fun most intense area of the field and and um you know, people say, well, you know, how do you then get these kids to do a Maradona turn? You know, well, we actually teach that part of, of the equation. You know, we'll go through, you know, the various coaching points of a Maradona turn, you know, and we'll grill and we'll drill those things in practice. And then we will ask them to do homework where, you know, we don't just say, okay, we're going to come and play these games and we want you to do Maradona turns. You're going to go home and hopefully you're going to do 500 of those Maradona turns a night every day of the week until you come back and now you can put that amazing talent into your game-based approach you know which makes it fun because now you've got an elite dribbling skill that you can now put into your game-based approach that allows you to dominate an opponent and score unbelievable goals and you know, all of a sudden you start feeling like Ronaldinho you know or Pelé you know you know you know Socrates you know, Romario you know we, we could go on and on and on you know and and it, I can't even think of an English guy that I could mention with with those guys you know but you know Leo Messi you know and 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 so you know you you Leo speaks some English so there's your connection <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, but the, the point is though that these games are enhanced by individual brilliance mm-hmm. which builds incredible self-concept and the kids fall in love with this way of playing you know because of this uh, you know creative relationism that they're able to take to a whole different level to other teams that that want to practice certain tactical you know, micro aspects of the game in order to build a robotic way of winning. Mm-hmm. Does all that make sense? That makes yeah, perfect sense. And again, I think, I think positional play eventually is going to be dead because with the amount no. of technology and the no. amount of film, I mean, it's not going to be dead in a sense that from a structure perspective, right, you can do it and then 
you get to the final third, the individual moment of brilliance is still there. Like Guardiola, he plays a positional play style, but with some flow, the players within that structure, they move, they switch positions a little bit, but always keeping the same shapes, the same zones, everything. But then when he gets to the final third, it's a brilliant play from Bernardo Silva, from a brilliant pass from De Bruyne. Early Holland manhandling somebody, you know, it's always something like that. It's always come down to an individual moment. So that's soccer, right? But what I'm saying is the the out the robotic, the what they call the automation of the player. I think that eventually is gonna die because the amount of technology and the amount of film that that you can watch, you can prepare for all those things. I mean. You know, Brighton, the way they play out of the back, they have literally a sequence of six passes that will free up a guy in the middle. Like, it's it's literally a chess game. But, like, I, I mean, I, can, I cannot think of myself going and teaching chess to my kids. Like, you got to move here within two seconds and pass the ball here at this angle, and then you move here. Like, that, it's just not soccer. And then when you a good coach watches the video and see that, they're going to teach the team to shut it down. And then, oh, you're going to lose that game, and now you've got to think of something else. So that's going to be your coaching, trying to think of way, uh, different automated ways to teach robots. It's, it's, it, I, I, th I hope people eventually will come down to their senses because it's going to stop working. I think, I mean, in Brazil, with, if the, our national team does well with, with Fernando Diniz and you know, playing this different style, I think it can send a message you know, to, to other teams. There are other coaches in Europe. Napoli's coach plays way more like that too with Kravatskelia and, you know, a lot of creative players. And even Ancelotti has an, a way more element of that than, you know, super positional. He moves, you know, Kamavinga to the midfield, to the left back. You know, he rotates players all the time and they are so free to move. So I think it's something that the world hopefully is going to start moving to the right direction, and I hope the U.S. follows. I mean, I think Messi where, being here. Where, where did we just see, you know, a, a tactical approach get picked apart? I assume you're going to refer to the Women's World Cup. Right. Yeah. We, we saw England with a very tactical approach, and, and we saw them switch their tactical approach to try and counter what Spain were doing, and they couldn't because Spain had too much creative relationism in their team so you know as england switched their tactics spain was able to counter with a, a very natural level of elite skill elite creativity you know on on the part it seems natural but obviously it's built over years and years of doing similar things to what we do here i'm i'm pretty sure you know but but they were able to counter you know all of the tactical moves that england made and, you know, England didn't have, you know, one number 10 type player on the, on the pitch. So they didn't have anybody that could wave a magic wand, you know, and create, you know, a, an opening in the Spanish defense. And Spain had a few of those players, you know, that could do creative things, you know, and slice the English de defense open. And of course, you know, you know, that's what led to, you know, eventually the, the goal. You know, and uh, you know, and and Spain winning the World Cup, you know, and and it was a, um, uh, you know, and it was an education, I think, in in the value of you know uh, creative relationism, uh, but where on the field is relationism most important? In the penalty area, in the attacking third. Why? Because that's when the games are won and losses. 
win, wins, wins. And I think you could make the argument that it's, it's most important on both ends of the field, right? Defensively, even though we take oftentimes a more structured, not me legends, I mean soccer, more structured approach to the defensive third and how you mind it, but like your relation and how you, how you stay connected to your teammates around you and the relation between you and your teammates determines the space that people can exploit. So, so here's the interesting thing. All of the truly great teams in world history have had this offensive, creative relationism in their game. All the really good teams, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, looking at you know the, the the French team in 1998, it was Zidane, you know, at the center of their their system, you know, and in 2002, the Brazilian team was just untouchable, you know, with with the three greats, you know, on that team, and and you look at, you look at that situation, and Look at Spain's goal. So, you know, what happened was Lucy Bronze got caught out of position, the right fullback. She'd got on a run forward, and she was unable to make it back in the transition when Spain won the ball. And um, this relativism didn't kick in for England quick enough. They didn't have that ability to adapt and adjust and uh, Alessia Rousseau, she missed the run by the left fullback, you know, uh, and, and basically didn't pick her up as she ran forward, you know, and, and it was that run that led to um, the, the goal, uh, and it's, it's Olga Carmona that made the run, that, that led to the goal, and it was a fantastic finish. You know, she made this incredible run. It was a first-time shot just inside the post, you know, and she timed her run brilliantly. She ran the whole length of the field, got on the end of, the, you know, of, of a great pass, didn't have to break start, uh, tr- stride, and, and scored an incredible goal, um, you know, uh, 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 you know that, that won the World Cup. You know, and there was a breakdown in defensive relativism, and there was an incredible display of offensive relativism in that one play. And it won the World Cup for Spain and it lost the World Cup for England. You know, but England didn't, all game long, they didn't even threaten, in my opinion, to be able to break down the Spanish defense. You know, and so it, it's a different philosophy in, in women's soccer, in Spanish soccer, you know, they have a different approach to the game, which is much more creative than the England, you know, approach. Well, and, and, I mean, you look at great teams in history, like you look at Barcelona with Messi, Suarez and Neymar. They're, they had no set positions. They moved all over. And, you know, the center mids, you go back before that time, the same Barcelona, Xavi, Iniesta, uh, Messi, Davivia, they're all rotating the whole time, you know? So, yeah, people start talking tiki-taka, tiki-taka, tiki-taka. But what actually made the difference was their creativity and how quickly they could move the ball between each other in tight spaces mm-hmm. and, you know, get to the individual moments of brilliance. You know, and you, you go, you, you, you think of every th- single team in history that actually people still talk about. Does anybody talk about Germany of 1954? No, but people do talk about uh, the Netherlands of 1974 that didn't win the World Cup but played that total football style, right? Yeah. They, in Brazil, people still talk about the 82 team that didn't win. 
because they played a really creative style as well. And in and the list goes goes on and on and on. Andy probably knows a ton more about the list. Maybe he knows more about the Germany of 1954. Right. Well, I, I want to put this in perspective for those that are listening. Right. Like like uh, there's this constant push and pull that I think happens from an internal perspective for coaches. Um, uh, in terms of what to prioritize and and what they say versus what they do and how that is 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 pushing and pulling within within their their own decision making process and the example I'm going to give is I remember as a kid going uh, making the Missouri State ODP team and going to regional camp back in the you know late 90s back when when regional camp and making the regional team and getting invited to the regional events was a big 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 deal right and um, I remember going to to camp and like it being the the, the topic that we heard from every coach that trained us throughout the entire week, right? Every regional coach, every state coach was like, it's really important that you don't just say one position that you can play. If a regional coach comes up to you, I remember my state coach telling me, if a regional coach comes up to you and asks you what position you play, tell him you can play anywhere, right? Like you've got to have this diversity and flexibility in which the way that you play the game. And so like, I remember walking away from that thinking like, okay, it's really important th- Soccer coaches in America, people in my orbit, think that it's really important that I can play a bunch of different positions, right? But then, so like I think that that's like, like a, a cliche, or not a cliche is the right word, but that's like an ever-present attitude that people have. But then you look at the way that many teams are trained, it's the opposite of that, right? Instead of teaching players relationism, and t- instead of really spending a lot of time helping kids under- understand how they should cover space, um, they spend a lot more time talking about specific positions or playing kids primarily at a specific position. And, 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 that, and that, that push and pull between the two, um, I, I think we'd all argue, is problematic to 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 the development of the game for our youth, um, and I, I've, I think I've said it before on this podcast. We never like I never got pigeonholed into a position with Andy, right? Like growing up playing in the club. I think I was more of a wide player than anything else, largely because I struggled to see behind my behind me as I was playing. Um, um, so I was, that was probably my best position was some wide position. Um, but in training, two v twos, one v ones, and and the occasional four v four scrimmage, um, that's that's how we played. And when I went off to college playing low level Division One, there was a I started at every single position on the field in my four years except goalkeeper. And well, I was, to be clear, though, I did want to pigeonhole you at the end of the bench. <laughs> <laughs> Your morals just stopped you. No, but seriously, that, this is something that is super important. I was watching a podcast the other day of, of a Brazilian player, Zé Roberto. Um, he played. He started in the World Cup in '98 and in 2006. I think he was hurt in 2002. That's why he didn't go. So he started in both '98 and 2006. Played for Bayern Munich for years. I mean, bunch of teams in Germany. Incredible player. Incredible. Played until he was 42. Left-footed, super skillful. Were originally left back. Do you know what he realized in 19, like early ni- 1996 or something? There was a guy named Roberto Carlos. <laughs> Never heard of him. And he was like... <laughs> Zay Roberto's wanna, thinking, I'm the wrong Roberto here. <laughs> he's like, I, I don't want to just play for the national team. I want to start. I'm not going to start as a left back. Because the guy is young, uh, a year younger than me. And, and His thighs and the size of tree trunks. And <laughs> he's, the be- he's the best ever. So he's like, I'm moving to center mid. So he became an eight. Yeah. And 
yeah, it was yeah. great for him. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Players that are able to adapt and, and do that. And I think that's one thing that, for example, looking at my team, it's 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 very rewarding to see, for example, two of my kids are now playing uh, with the 2010s because they're 2010s and they play up with me in, with the 2009s. Half of my boys are in high school, so there's no national league. There's nothing like majorly important for them, just a few games. So they're going and playing those national league games and stuff with the 2010s. So one of the players mostly played left back, you know, or winger with me last year. And then he goes to the 2010s. I told them, put him in center mid. Put him in the center mid for the first game. My God, he's so good at center mid. He's so good at checking his shoulders, knowing where to turn to, what to do. You know, he's skillful. He can play uh, through balls. He can play diagonal balls. He scores bangers from outside of the box. He wasn't playing center because mid. Because he trains in our, our 36 by 72 foot field the and plays 2v2s and 1v1s every day. And yep. that's where all of that skill then set comes from. Coming, coming from England, I, I don't even know what check your shoulders means. You know, because, you know, I was told to play the way I faced yeah. <laughs> my whole career. You're not supposed to turn. Well, in England, you just play turn. The, play the way you face. So, the yeah. England, you just turn your neck. It's the long ball from the defense to the <laughs> other step, and you turn your neck. And then the ball is played back, you turn your neck. Eventually, it's the ball like drops watching a tennis in the match. middle. Exactly. My, my coaches wouldn't even let me turn my neck. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. And then you, you, you Brazilians are spoiled. And, uh, look at other players like Daniel. He usually played the 10 for me, you know, or anywhere in the midfield. Go, went to England for the ID2 national team, started as a right winger. Then now high school, as a freshman, starting a left back. Yeah, you know yeah. they the boys can, and obviously maybe might take a, a a game or two. They'll make a few mistakes just because they're not used to playing. But like they figure out so quickly, and they're so good on the ball. And that's the thing. Why did the, his coach put him a left back? He's crazy skillful on the ball. He's gonna get the ball with space, and he's gonna. Have have the freedom to do whatever you want. He's a freshman. He's not going to have the size maybe to play center mid against the seniors, right? So I'm putting myself in the shoes of a listener right now. Like, okay, guys, I got it, right? Like, I got it. Like, I want my kids to be creative. I want them to understand how they relate to their teammates and to the people that they're competing against on the field. I want my kids to be creative. I don't want my kids to play the way they face. So what do I do? And so, like, I mean, it's way more of an answer than this. But simply put, don't work on it in practice. Like, don't don't go you know, big sided or even larger, small sided activities, six V six, eight V eight. Don't do any of that stuff in practice. Don't pigeonhole your kids into we're working on this type of position or this type of pattern in the sessions. Put them in a really tight space and just stack one V ones and two V twos on top of each other over and over and over again. Encourage your kids to take risks and fail and check their shoulder and try to turn and oh they turned into to, to pressure. Have that feel. Let's talk through that. Let's work through that. And if you do that and you stack that you know, session after session, month after month, year after year, you're going to end up with players that are enormously flexible, enormously diverse in their ability to play and really understand how to fill space and cover space and work in a creative way with the players around them. And that's why you should coach in games too, right? When you're in games, you're giving them instructions and you're not bringing one kid. I heard the other day that, you know, most, you know, professional academies they don't give instructions to the kids out loud they pull a kid to the side and give the instructions to that kid 
all the boys need the same instruction even if they're not the ones making the mistake the point serves for all of them it's an it's a it's a learning experience that's why i'm talking to the center mid right now but the center back is listening when i flip them he listened to that so it's it's there so you gotta coach the the tactical side in the game you gotta give the kids all of that in the game but why that doesn't happen they want to win the game. So they want to put the players in the positions that are going to give the best chances to win the game. They It's that internal push-pull. Yeah. So, so, Andrew, your team was five times national indoor champions. Heck, right? yeah, we were. Yeah. You know, just, and that was when indoor was the game. Yeah. There was no football. Yeah, there was no football. You know, and, and it was, it was a, you know, the best quality uh, you know, experience outside of the 11-on-11 game in the nation. You know, I was quiet on the sidelines, right? <laughs> I was so busy playing Andy. No, you were never quiet on the sidelines. <laughs> I've left games dizzy, like feeling yeah, like I mean, what, it was like was one, one, one out of every two or three tournaments because you were coaching seven teams. Where by the time we got to the final, your voice was gone, so you were still yelling. We just couldn't hear you. That was the only times you were quiet, <laughs> and it was totally pleasant at that point in time to play, right? Yeah. You know, and that motivates the kids, makes them work harder, gets them excited, and on and on and on and on and on. This is a whole podcast topic, but you know, I, I'm with Philippe. You know, I think that my role and responsibility is to is to give a constant stream of information to my players. You know, because we let them play in practice so often, and they're playing games. You know, at the very least, I have to do a lot of positional work during. The, the real game when my players are out there playing against the opponents you know and it's all positive you know it's all encouraging it's positive you know it's you know hey in this situation think about this and this it's the tactical work I, I wasn't able to dedicate practice time to because it's not as important as actually learning how to play the game in tight spaces under pressure to be really clear though if you're listening to this when we were learning our skills Andy wasn't doing any of this on the sidelines during the games when we were still learning our skills Andy was entirely in our ear encouraging us to try the skill once that skill became intuitive and I assume I assume uh, 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 Philippe's the same way. But once that skill became intuitive, then Andy started slowly moving in a direction it, of helping us to understand the game from a from a tactical perspective. That's the approach that I take as a coach. It's the evolution of the curriculum, right? Yeah. So you look at when I look at my '09 boys. It I've been with them for f I think I had five complete seasons with them by now, five or six. Can't remember. Anyway, they were first year of the '77. They're really young. You know, they were a team just moved up from D2 to D1. You know, I put the, we put the team together, you know, and start coaching them. Super skillful boys and completely lost on the field, honestly, from a tactical perspective. And for the first two years, parents kept asking, when are they going to be more organized? When, like, the, and, like, frustrations all the time, parents, you know. And then... But obviously, and that's the job of a coach, being a salesman and, you know, explaining and telling them why it's better. And as you know, if if in in that case, if you do a good job and the parents buy into what you're saying and they stay with it, they were going to see the results. And that's what happened. Then slowly the boys started looking a little more organized, but still games would be seven, five, nine to eight, you know, super transition all the time because we're losing the ball all the time they're not super organized you know they're rotating positioning so they're not grasping all the concepts completely but they're going through it right and they're competing like the f 
year one, we were already competing with every top team. We used to lose a ton for Blue Valley, you know, and now we've been them the last five times we played quite easily, to be honest, the last few times. And, you know, it's the progression. And now they're way more organized than, than, than the other teams because the boys are so confident. They know what to do. They're so in love with soccer. They watch a ton of soccer. You know, we've played a lot and they're so good on the ball. They're so comfortable. And even when they're not in the right position, they're so good that they make up for it. And, yeah. you know, they're going to keep progressing. They're still 14 years old. They're going to keep progressing. And, you know, we won't stay cup this year. And, like, things are looking even better for, for the team. And I think that's the progression. It's You've got to go through the pain in the early ages, which is not real pain. It, w there's no pain in losing a, a Heartland game or a local league game or even a tournament. It's it's They're young. They're trying to learn. And I'm you... Just so, a quick so observation here is, Philippe, you and I have taken so much air out of this podcast and covered so much of the airwaves. Andy's hands over there are starting to shake, just ready and eager to uh, I'm about to walk out. forward. I'm, I'm, I'm about to <laughs> abandon ship <laughs> if, if, if I don't get to be captain for a minute or two. <laughs> it's because you're English. You guys don't know anything about relationships. <laughs> You know, Best we're, comment today. <laughs> we're, we're used to empire. You know, we're used to ruling. You know, it's and this leads me love. You know, nicely into this this you know this next segment I want to talk about. Um, you know, I studied with with you know you know very keen interest. Um, you know, Vlatko's U.S. national team in this World Cup, and poor Vlatko, you know, didn't have the players to work with in this World Cup. You know, and and let let's draw uh, you know any you know a, a line between you know Vlatko's USA players and Spain's players, you know, and you know let's look at what you know Spain had, Bonmati, you know, played you know a semi number ten type position, you know, withdrawn attacker, advanced midfielder, and and she was an absolute dynamo, fantastic on the ball, dominated opponents both ways. You know, she has moves, she can score goals. You know, she's got an engine that won't quit. Vlanko didn't have a player on his roster close to Bonmati in quality and that should be enough to not win a world cup period right there is and here's the amazing thing is that spain you know had this massive you know uprising on the part of the women and 15 players refused to play for the national team you know and i did a bit of research and you know you would you would laugh if you if you watched um you know i've got a name here somewhere um anyway there's there's a there's a girl a young lady that plays in number 10 and used to be on the national team who's absolutely fantastic. Uh, and, you know, she didn't even get to play in this World Cup because she was part of the 15. Her name's Claudia Pina, you know, and she's a maestro. And, and uh, you know, she's a game changer. And, you know, had she been English, she would probably have been in England's start in 11 as the number 10 you know, and England might have won the final if she had been there with that creativity. Um, you know, and, and you know, what if Pina or Bonmati had been born in Oxford, England? You know, they wouldn't be the way they are. Yeah, it's funny you <laughs> should say that because 
I, I added here, then again, had they been born in Oxford, they would probably be netball players or rowers. <laughs> they definitely would have owned more raincoats in their lifetime. Yeah. So, so you know, the, the environment probably plays a big part in it. You know, the, the love for the game and the more creative way in which the Spanish have traditionally looked at the game. Sure. You know, and, and so, you know, what you've got is that you, you've got this, this amazing um, coming together of talent, you know, that, that has only just you know, really flourished um, in, in Spain. Um, and I want you to listen to what Bon Marti says about this. I owe a lot to Pep Guardiola. When you're a kid growing up in Catalonia, the Pep years belong to legends like Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets, Messi. You know the team, no? I remember watching the games from a bar in Santa Pierre de Ribes. I probably butchered that. The town where I grew up. A 40-minute drive from Barcelona, I would zoom in on Xavi and Iniesta, how they moved, how they created chances, how they scanned the space around them before receiving the ball. Iniesta was always driving the ball forward, so I tried to do that. Today, I feel I have the same way of understanding the game, the Barca way, if you want to call it that. When I was playing for the Barca under-15s, I couldn't see a way of making a living off football here. I didn't know much about women's football elsewhere in Europe, like England or Spain or Germany. But people spoke a lot about the US. You could study there while playing, and after that you could have a professional career. I was like, oh great. My parents and I were even talking about the University of Oregon and what exams I'd take. I will also love Barca, but you have to think about your career, no? Then when I was 17 and playing for the second team, Barca suddenly made the first team professional. He's lo he lost his notes. He's got a lot of notes. <laughs> the year after, I was promoted to the seniors. In two years, I went from, yes, I'll go to the U.S., to, oh, wow, I'm a full-time pro at Barca. My parents rebelled against Spanish law. They are teachers of languages and Catalan literature. Their house is pretty much a library. Before, whenever a couple had a child in Spain, they were obliged to put the surname of the father first and the surname of the mother second. I don't know if there was any real reason for it. That's just how it worked. Anyway, my parents didn't like it. They've always fought hard for equality. So when I was born in 1998, they took part in a big effort to get the rule changed, and they succeeded. My first surname, Bonmati, is from my mother, and my second surname, Conca, is from my father. I'm very proud of what they did. This willingness to fight for women's rights, I feel that I have it in my blood. Incidentally, when I married my current wife, Tracy, you know, she said, do you want me to take your name? And I said, that's not my decision. I said, you keep the name or take the name that you want to take. I said, you can go back to your maiden name, Keen, if you want to do that. Or you can keep your husband's name, Atzenweiler. You know, and we had a conversation. And I said to her, I said, for the sake of your kids, I think you should keep Atzenweiler. You know, your kids relate to Atzenweiler. You're their mother. That's, that's powerful. So you should keep the name that they have as the last name. You know, and, you know, I had no desire to impose my name on that family. That doesn't sound very empirical of you, Andy. Yeah, I'm losing it as I get older. I, <laughs> well, my, I also told Shelby to keep her last name because in Brazil we have the mom's, the uh, mom's name and then the dad's name yeah. after. So that's what that's what we did. And I think it's, I've, I've, I feel the same way. I think it's ridiculous that you take the mom's last name out of the kid's name. I mean, it's why just the dad? They're they're both there. They're both equal, you know. Uh, 
anyway mom probably more important to be honest <laughs> yeah but moving back to to spain and, and this is on the men's side in men's soccer barcelona has been the best relationism example at the professional level over the last 20 years followed closely by manchester city real madrid arsenal manchester united you know but barcelona is still digging themselves out of the debt caused by buying all those great players and have struggled for the last few years because they they can't do that any longer you know, and, and so, you know, we are developers of players. We can't buy players. So what we do is we develop the players that we believe Barcelona would want. We believe, you know, that are going to help win a World Cup in the long run. But that's not actually the, our main goal. Our main goal is to develop these players into brave, creative leaders for life. And I just don't understand how, by putting a player in a pigeonhole, by getting them to play a position and think about the game... Do a role. In, in, ...in limited tactical ways, I don't see how any coach can look at themselves in the mirror the following morning and say, I did a good job last night, or even, I'm a good guy. Because they're focusing on the wrong thing. They're fo focusing on temporary ego-based values, adult values, you know, where their ego is worth a lot more than the child's development into a very creative human being who is able to relate entirely to other people, you know, of, of the human ilk, if you like, you know, in, in very creative, positive ways. And to me, that's bordering on a crime. You know, we should be better than this as human beings. You mean you don't think you'd wake up the next morning, look yourself in the mirror and be proud of yourself? Like, man, I really limited that kid last night <laughs> in a way that allowed him to um, stay within a box and not make any mistakes. Um, and as a result, the team performed better. And so good job, Coach Andy. So, and this is this is interesting, <laughs> you know, almost of a whole, you know, historical can of worms, you know. And so the tactical systems during my lifetime have cycled through many changes. Sure. Yeah. First, there was the WM formation, which was a high scoring forward heavy approach which, to the game. Which now is a trash company in Kansas City. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, then it was followed by Alf Ramsey's World Cup winning wingless wonders. You know, and Alf, for all of the, you know, the, the wonders of winning a World Cup, did a disservice to the English game's future, you know, by playing the way he played, you know, for England to win the World Cup. Then there was Charles Hughes and his long ball mantra that sent English football into the doldrums for two World Cup cycles, at least. And this was followed by a one and two touch craze that lasted for the majority of two decades with very few rewards. Hot potato the ball, don't hold it, don't take people on, you know, just get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it. You know, and a lot, you know, a lot of people in my generation generation are stuck in that loop you know they're still teaching that play the way you're facing get rid of it mantra and it's not you know relationism at all you know only now does England have the ability to field a front five that's capable of playing in a creative relationship relationist way Saka Fodham Grealish Bellingham and Kane are arguably the most creative front five in world football right now however Gareth Southgate messes things up because he won't play them together. And he insists on putting players like Jordan Henderson into that mix. So, you know, it, it's just frightening how, you know, it, it, coaches can't even see when they've got a whole bunch of diamonds and, and then they throw an ugly rock no, into uh, the middle of a bunch of diamonds. It just doesn't make any sense. When, well, and, and, and this is not me trying to make fun of you this time. 
how many how many oh, thank you about, about time <laughs> <laughs> how many how many tro- how many trophies has england won since 1966 oh you're just trying to really no i'm not me, i, you know, I yeah. promise i'm not you know. you're gonna give me the wrong answer actually How many trophies has England won since 1966? Say two. He wants you to say one. Well, you, I, you know, you, I mean, you including the women in that, but in no, the Euros. No, no. I'm talking on the men's side. On the men's side? Yeah. Well, the I, U21. I the U21. I was going to the U21 World Cup, yeah. right? And the U17 World Cup, right? Yeah, that you know that, but you know the the um, the English learning disabled team won a won a World Cup. You know, in in that environment, does that count? Well, I wasn't looking for that one, but uh, to make my point, my point, my point being, England with that per, uh, style didn't win anything. The only teams that won it for England were the U21 and U17, which were what the more creative English players. These players that you're describing, right? Yeah, yeah. You know that. You know that Phil Foden was at the center of that. How do, how doesn't that prove to the English coaches that this is the only way that actually worked? For England, safety and conservatism is a hell of a drug. So, so have you uh, have you spotted the the um, the Salma Paraluello sensation? The what? Salma Paraluello. Did I butcher that? You definitely. Can I read it? Do you have your right <laughs> written down there? No, you can't. You're not going to show me up again. <laughs> she's the left-footed forward. You know, she's she's 90. Uh-huh. You know, and she won with the Spanish youth team the under 20 World Cup. You know that the US was abysmal at. I watched every one of their games and they were terrible at that World Cup. Frighteningly, you know, out of touch. You know, and She also, uh, you know, when she was under 17, won the World Cup at the under 17 level. The only player ever to win a World Cup at under 17, under 20, and at the full national level. You know, and Spain has this golden generation now that, you know, as well as the older players that won, a, you know, these Youth World Cups mm-hmm. 15 years ago or 14 years ago or 10 years ago. You know, they've got this golden young generation come in. And so they've got a combination of good older players and good younger players that are going to keep them at the top probably for quite a long time. And they're only going to get better. And the U.S. is going to get relatively worse for a whole bunch of reasons that we'd have to run another pot on. You know, the U.S. is going to get gradually worse and worse relative. And this was, you know, um, you know, really, you know, Vladko's unfortunate problem was he didn't have the tools to get the job done with you know you know it, it, he he lost Tobin Heath who was phenomenal in the last World Cup on the right wing the rest of the world has developed these great tools over the last four years these players have come out of nowhere and they're dominating the ball and they're doing wonderful things creatively you know and you know Vlaco lost Kristen Press obviously Megan Rapinoe you know isn't the athlete she used to be so she could only play a bit part because four years is a big deal when you get to that age, you know, and she's, she lost a lot of her physical abilities over the last four years. And so, you know, the, the only somewhat creative player they had, it was Rose and they didn't have a creative forward. You know, it was just run and gun up top and the finishing was abysmal. The finishing was abysmal compared to, especially the Spanish finishers, you know, that could put the ball three inches inside the post. You know, on a consistent basis, you know, and had the American 
girls up top had that ability to finish, they could have made a run all the way to at least to the semifinals, yeah. no, maybe the final. But they just didn't have the finishing ability. You know, they have very little deceptive dribbling ability, very little finishing ability. The two main weapons that a great striker needs at the highest level, they didn't have. And it's not coming from anywhere soon yeah. because these players are still mostly coming out of the college ranks in the US and all they're getting is three and a half months of training every year and then they piecemeal it for the rest of the and year. And a lot of fitness in the summer, a lot they of workouts like in the summer, in the spring, a yeah. lot of them. Yeah, yeah. That's you know, Fleet's favorite part of being a college soccer player. They, 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 they work like crazy. In, in all fairness, I have a copy that Anson Dorrance personally gave me of his summertime program for the, for the players at UNC and involves a lot of technical work. But inevitably, it's, it's on their own. So, you know, they're doing this for three months while they're home, you know, while they're away from UNC, you know, and so they, they don't get that, that, you know, like we were talking about that relativism, you know, that, you know, you're yeah. having There's no to time. There's no time to get that into the, there's know, only three months. Yeah, you, you can't pull it together. You, you need a year-round program that is giving you that exposure in order to optimize development. And the U.S. program, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope that the next World Cup, somehow, somewhere, the U.S. find a bunch of really creative players, you know, that can play at the level of the Spanish team or even the English team, you know, and can get to a World Cup final again. But I think we might be in for a long famine in terms of our World Cup wins yeah. on the women's side mm -hmm. as a result of what's happening in the rest of the world where this is all coming together now. The money's behind the game. You know, it, it's it's growing like a weed, you know, and there's massive money to be made over there. There's careers to be had. There's fame and fortune. You know, I, I was just reading that they sold out, um, you know, either the you know, Real Madrid Stadium or Barcelona Stadium, you know, for, you know, the, the Madrid versus Barcelona Cup final that was, you know, that was held recently in Spain. Sold it out at 96,000. Yeah. Wasn't as big as the Rose Bowl because the capacity of the stadium couldn't, couldn't do it. They could have sold it out probably to 150,000 if they'd have had, you know, the seats available. You know, so the game is now on the women's side becoming massive. In Brazil too, it's growing like crazy. Yeah, it's growing like participation. It's starting to get investment. Uh, we talked about it. This World Cup was the first World Cup that the Brazilian team had actually like a true Following. staff yeah. and everything. Like they they had everything they needed to have. Before that, it was just. I mean, you look at Jamaica. They still they 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 all got fundraising money to go to the World Cup, and some countries are still going through that. But the other countries are growing. Yep. Well, Andy, as we wrap up this pos positional play versus relationism conversation, like, what is the bow that we need on on it? What? what how do? How do we? How do we uh, finish out this conversation? Okay. So, I, I, you know, is this an ending statement time? You know, to yeah, wrap so, it up. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, I was saving this for for last. Um, and, and this is the crux of, of, of the whole podcast. Most modern tactical training systems and the practice components chosen to train them work against or destroy creative relationism. And most of those systems use pattern plays, functional training, 
rondos, unopposed or low-pressure shooting drills, and programs that don't include a significant deceptive dribbling component. That's the vast majority of the training programs you know, at the youth professional level, the collegiate level, the high school level. You know, they, they, you know, that's what they use at that level. A warning if you use any of these things. Positional play is programming. It doesn't work. It is not creative relationism and will be destroyed by creative relationism. Pattern play is programming. It will be destroyed by creative relationism. Rondos are programming. You don't go forward. You have to play the ball first time. You're, you're programmed to go sideways and backwards with most of the passes with the occasional forward pass to split the defenders you know it's programming it's not good programming you know we to a certain degree program players but we program players to be able to use you know a, a drag marriage on a turn you know to completely deceive an opponent leave them dead in the water to create numbers up or even you know, numbers even in attack you know so that we can create a goal scoring opportunity you know we're shooting all the time because the goals are so close together we have to do better and choose a flexible system that optimizes the individual and collective relationism in the context of the penalty area under the greatest offensive and defensive pressure. It is our belief that after nearly 50 years of study, the training soccer legends approach and the facilities and the culture and the life culture that we have in Kansas City and around our franchise system is the ultimate relationist way to teach soccer. Would you agree? Yes. 100%. Well, um, guys, this was fun one. Philippe, thanks for uh, unearthing and bringing this topic uh, to life. Um, next week's going to be a good one, too. Philippe, Philippe has set us up with topics for our next three um, uh, episodes, so it's good stuff all around. Andy, Philippe. Enjoy that heat out there. Let's get going into uh, hopefully fall season <laughs> around the corner. And it's a little I actually more. can't wait for winter season, to be honest, in terms of soccer yeah, on yeah. only. Yeah. Well, good stuff, Thanks, guys. guys. Thank you. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. See Bye. you.